Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. Located in the foothills of Wyoming's spectacular Wind River Range, Wyoming Catholic College, an accredited four-year Great Books Institution, is built on the ancient Western tradition of the liberal arts and the freedom of the American West. The college offers its students an immersion in the primary sources of the classical tradition, the grandeur of the mountain wilderness, and the spiritual heritage of the Catholic Church. Students experience the illumination of imagination and intellect through the great books and traditional disciplines, literature and philosophy, mathematics and theology, science and Latin, and an outdoor program second to none. The college celebrated an in-person graduation with its seniors last year and welcomed its largest freshman class ever this year. Learn more about the college's unique space in the world of American higher education at wyomingcatholic.edu. David Ayers is professor of sociology at Grove City College. He is the author of Christian Marriage, Experiencing Social Research, and and his new book, (laughs) After the Revolution, Sex and the Single Evangelical, our topic today. Welcome, Professor Ayers. Thank you for having me. You know, I was just at a meeting in Seattle, and there were some Grove City students there. What a great bunch of youngins you've got there. Yeah, I, I I really really love working with our students. They're great. Indeed. Second yeah. second to none. <laughs> All right. Uh, uh, Carl Truman wrote the intro for the book. He's been a colleague of yours. Yes, uh, actually, I knew Carl um, at least to some extent way back before he came to Grove City College when he was at at Westminster Seminary. My son was a MDiv student there. I mean, sorry, my son-in-law was an MDiv student there, and my daughter was actually his assistant. Very good. His his full-time assistant there. In his introduction, he highlights the centrality of sexual codes to any society. Do you agree that in order to understand in a society, you you have to go look at at, at the sexual codes, among other things, but the sexual codes are one of society's core organizing principles, yes? Absolutely. There you, the, um, even if you were looking at reality from a pure survival of the fittest <clears throat> framework, survival of the fittest really means reproduction of the fittest, you know, and, and that requires, you know, reproduction, but it also requires reproduction in a, in a um, setting likely to produce competent, productive citizens who, who, you know, will acquire the culture and transmit it to their offspring. So even from the most baldly secular standpoint, there are very few things that are more important. And anthropologically, one of the first things you're going to really be looking at is, is marital systems, sexual rules, and, and the like. What, what does it change? What kind of changes take place uh, in... in, in when you get a change in sexual codes in in society? Well, what we're seeing is, um, and what you can see is, first of all, multiple changes. First of all, the the more and more that you kind of are indifferent to whether or not sexual relationships occur within the context of marriage, um, the more you can undermine marriage itself. And then the degree to which you undermine marriage itself, um, you're going to essentially undermine everything attached to marriage, which includes, you know, a coherent, well-functioning uh, family. So increasingly, we, we, we define family as if marriage 
was only kind of a luxury add-on uh, to family. If we talk about diversity, what we really mean is hundreds of different ways to have and form families. <laughs> we don't even really have coherent rules. So, for example, if you go into, you know, many cultures, including culture for a great deal of the period in the, in the Old Testament uh, times, even something like polygamy, uh, which was really polygyny, a man could have more than one wife at the same time, was, was heavily moral, morally structured. With, with, with very clear defined rules and obligations on behalf of everyone concerned and, and a strong emphasis on, on, on the procreation of children within marriage. You get away from that and everything else begins to slide. So for example, today, uh, and, and I think one of the best people to expound this is Mark Regneris, who's a conservative Roman Catholic sociologist at University of Texas, Austin, really, really fine guy. He, he was one of the people that endorsed and read my book. Um, his book, Cheap Sex, you know, which, which your mother would have said, why buy the cow if you can get the milk for free? What he basically said is that part of, the, part of the reason for our plummeting marriage rates and people not getting married into their late 20s and early 30s now, as, as literally the median, uh, is because they, they have so many other options available to them and they don't even really have to get married to have children. So you know, they delay it and they're now viewing it as kind of an icing on the cake, what we call a capstone view of marriage. These, um, you know, the, all these things have enormous unintended consequences once you begin moving in a particular direction. We don't really know all the reasons that God structured uh, the human race and, and the marital institution, which he attached sex, sex to immediately, um, we don't really know all the reasons for it until we break it and then mm -hmm. begin watching what happens. It's kind of like a, something as complex as the human brain, right? You kind of know what a particular part of the brain does, partly by what happens to it when it's damaged. Hmm. And through the damage of it, you, you, see, the core, you, you see what that actually was doing. Yeah. So this blithe kind of rejection of uh, the codes of monogamy and uh, chastity uh, it has produced and is, is continuing to produce enormous negative consequences. And ultimately, I think to some extent, civilization ends up in the balance. Yeah. Uh, in the beginning, to get, to get to one of the concrete subjects of the book, you note a dismaying fact. Quote, evangelical churches as a whole are not marked by sexual faithfulness. What does the evidence show there? Well, I'd, I'd be reluctant to, to give a lot of percentages because when I try to do that from memory, I'm going to always end up, you know, screwing up. Um, but it basically shows that most, most professed evangelicals will now live together before they get married, often multiple times. When they're living together, it's not necessarily uh, focused on marriage. In fact, it's usually not. I, I covered that in Christianity Today, uh, March a year and a half ago as well. Um, it shows that most evangelicals, the overwhelming majority, are, are sexually active before they're married. Um, and then there are a lot of uh, corollary things. I've done, I've done a couple articles recently, one, for the, one focused on Roman Catholics for Crisis Magazine, and I believe the other was for Gospel Coalition. Our, our abortion rates are really high. Um, 
A lot of it is hidden. Uh, people lie about it even on surveys, but, but the actual medical records don't. Um, and so, and, and their beliefs follow suit. And, you know, as to what comes first, the chicken or the egg, my answer is always kind of yes. <laughs> uh, <laughs> beliefs and behavior are self-reinforcing, are mutually reinforcing. Yeah. Uh, we tend to adjust our beliefs to fit our behavior, and we, just, we tend to adjust our behavior to fit our beliefs. So, so the bottom line is that um, in evangelical churches this, it are, are unbelievably broken. We're doing better, I guess, than people of no religious affiliation, but we're not really doing markedly better than liberals, uh, liberal Protestants or, um, you know, that kind of thing. Hmm. You know, it's interesting. I was presenting some of this data at a church a year ago. And my typical response is that I'm saying things are worse than they really are. And that's partly because people's experience is wrapped around those people who are the most committed members of the church that they see every week. And then they use that as a baseline. But that's not what pastors are dealing with. That's not what elders are dealing with. Um, they typically are not as uh, sanguine about what's going on. But, but a woman came up to me after, after the service and she said, I think it's worse than what you say. I said, really? Hmm. She said, absolutely. She said, I'm a divorced woman. Um, I'm absolutely committed to uh, chastity. And um, I'm only dating Christian men and virtually every guy that I've dated wants to have sex after about two or three dates, even though they're all professed evangelicals. And then it, then I ended at that point. She said, I'm literally, you know, that's not an unusual story. Hmm. I think many people in their 30s and 40s, for example, trying to get remarried would tell you the same thing. That, that so-called shopping for their mate in evangelical circles does not necessarily give them people who care about biblical chastity. Yeah. How do... The young evangelicals, whom you profile, how do they rationalize uh, the premarital sex, even cohabitation, when the churches so explicitly forbid it? Well, first of all, remember that there's a lot of kind of major Christian figures out there who get a lot of press for their Christian commitment who who have or are openly living together. Um, Chris Pratt would be a good example of that. Um, and um, there's just this kind of casual attitude towards the whole thing. So first of all, they see people applauded as strong. You know, I'm not going to necessarily deny the salvation of somebody like that, but I'm going to deny the soundness of their understanding and practice in this area. But that's not what these young people are hearing. Um, they're hearing that, wow, you know, here's a movie star who's a Christian or here's a sports hero who's a Christian. And yeah, you know, they're living with their girlfriend. They're going to have a baby. But, you know, they're, they're waiting until they get married, but they want to do something special a year from now when they have the time. And so they just kind of absorb it through their skin. It, it, it's essentially normalized uh, for them. But I think the biggest things are these, uh, and I address them in my book, you know, for want of a better term, they would be the kind of worldview shifts, many of which Carl Truman really addresses so eloquently in his last two major books, expressive individualism, that reality and morality basically conforms to my desires, and essentially we kind of construct our own morality. And I think in the church, it's especially taken the form, I mean, first of all, relativism big time. Uh, what Paterum Sorokin was talking about back in the 30s and 40s, sensate culture and the adoption of a, 
you know, kind of a sensate set of presuppositions that ultimately man is the measure of all things is the way that that has typically been stated philosophically and the, the way Sorokin defines it. We measure God by human standards, not, 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 not man by God's standards. We judge ourselves by comparing ourselves to the people around us. We don't judge ourselves by comparing ourselves to, to the standards laid out in the word of God. The, um, and I think it's, it's concretely taken the form of moralistic therapeutic deism. Right. God's, God's become kind of a giant feel-good therapist. He's our buddy. You know, I, I followed these memes for a while on, on social media. I think it was Facebook. Coffee with Jesus. You know, and it kind of shows a kind of a quasi-hippie, you know, <laughs> having conversations with Jesus over coffee. Um, the old style of, of a conversation with Jesus was James, you know, whose knees were so calloused by praying because he prayed on his knees <laughs> that they, I think they called him camel knees. <laughs> um the uh, I'm I'm not as hung up on the posture of prayer, but certainly the heart posture of prayer that that we see is is casual. God mm. is little, and people are big, and 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 God wants me uh, to be happy. So so it, is there any ambiguity about sexual matters in the Bible? Anything that people could draw from there to loosen some of the strictures? On, on sexual behavior. You don't, you don't no. really go into this in the book, really, but, but just, just did they find, try to find things to rationalize looser sexual behavior? Yeah, they do. And, and it's possible because, of course, you have so many heroes of the faith whose, whose sexual picadillos are, are pretty honestly addressed, you know, yeah. Yeah. in the scriptures. Um, we're certainly not, we're not, we're given David, I mean, David's a type of many things in the Bible, and he's certainly a powerful historical figure, but he's also one of, of repeated failed sexual practices, uh, which he also allowed you know, in his own family. What they don't see is the disaster that tended to follow that, the judgment that tended to follow that. Um, but most of them aren't really thinking that carefully about it, because you would have to go to the Old Testament, and you would have to go to those periods where it at least appears to me that God was... Not make. I don't know. I don't think the term "making concessions" makes the most. But he was dealing with the reality as he found it. Um, so, for example, there was a bit of a double standard in the Old Testament in terms of virginity expectations of men and, and women at marriage. Right. But that's not exactly say, saying that it was uh, okay. I think what they usually do is they they cherry pick in order to create a kind of a sappy feel good Jesus. And, and that's what I typically find. Yeah. And it normally comes down to something like, don't judge me, man. <laughs> one, of my, one of my daughters told me um, when she was a student at Grove City College, because, you know, we have these problems there, just like everywhere. It's not unusual. Um, the, she said, Dad, it's really difficult for me to talk to other students at Grove City College about, about morality and sin and things like this. She said, the minute I begin saying, well, you, you know, you really can't do that, that's a sin, whether it's sex outside of wedlock, drunkenness, cheating on exams. She said, they all say, don't judge me, man. Jesus says, don't judge, you know, you're being judgmental. Yeah. And so that simple statement then neutralizes or sets aside every moral regulation. 
you know, it's great. It's great for you, but not necessarily for me. Would you characterize this as the removal of moral judgment in in matters of sex, or is it more positive as another sexual morality? Sounds like you're saying that they the don't judge me says no, but I, I get the sense that they they do feel a moral sanction for, or they at least they want to feel a moral sanction for this therapeutic attitude. Yeah, and 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 I think that's actually that's actually true. Um, Christian Smith, who, who kind of really laid out moralistic therapeutic deism and mapped it which is, by the way, rests explicitly on prior insights about expressive individualism and so forth within his field of sociology that had already been advanced by people like Robert Bell and Philip Reif. Um, but um, it's a consent ethic. And um, in the book, I talk about it, and Dennis, um, gosh, I'm trying to remember, so I, I, I better be careful, um, well, you, I talk you, about the movement of ethic from an ethic of covenant to an ethic of consent. Right. I was going to ask you what 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 do you, what do you mean by that? Right. Ethic of consent is as long as it's voluntary, and you know force and fraud isn't involved, um, it's okay. And then sometimes to that is added things like you know noble feelings or noble intentions. But it doesn't even necessarily need to be attached to some kind of plans to get married. The old problem that the church has always had, and you find this back in the colonial Puritan days, the statistics show us this because we, we look at people, when people got married and when they died. I'm sorry, when people got married and when they had the first baby. A lot of Puritans, a lot of Puritan young people were, pre, you know, the woman was pregnant when they got married. Hmm. The evidence is pretty clear. Um and, it's, you know, the Puritans were really earthy people. They understood that. But the idea is, is that you jump the altar, that, that the sexual activity basically occurred between people who, A, thought it was wrong, that they were succumbing to temptation, but within the framework of a relationship that was clearly on, on the route to marriage in a society in which those kind of promises and agreements were very seriously kept. You know, you didn't just kind of like dump the person that you were engaged to uh, in, a, in that era of the world and in, in a Puritan culture. So, but now it doesn't really need to be attached to that at all. Uh, one of the stories that Walt Mueller uh, gives um, that's quoted elsewhere and that I quote in my book is about an evangelical woman at a, at a multi-church conference on sexuality but, you know, so being basically sponsored by a consortium of evangelical churches, she spoke by invitation and got, got, you know, applause, pretty thunderous applause, according to Walt. Um, and um, her story was, my, my boyfriend and I, you know, ended up having sex. We both felt really guilty about it. We prayed and repented, and but we read the Bible, sought the Lord, studied the matter for, you know, I can't remember the period of time, but, you know, a couple of weeks, maybe three weeks. And at the end of the time, we came to realize that God wants us to be happy. Sex makes us happy. Therefore, God wants us to have sex. And since then, we've been having sex. And you've got, <laughs> here you have audiences consisting of multiple evangelical churches, A, inviting that as a, as a, as a formal presentation at an evangelical conference, and B, applauding it. That is the essence of moralistic therapeutic deism.
Yeah. So it's, it's, it's basically an alternative system. People still don't like adultery. They still don't like sex trafficking and rape and, you know, sexual abuse, which is good. I mean, I applaud that. But as long as, it, as, long as it's consensual, um, they, they have a very difficult time. And, quote, it doesn't hurt anyone. They have a very difficult time coming up with a reason why it's bad. But that, again, that's because they're not starting with God. They're starting with themselves. Their ethical system is emanating from themselves, not being derived from, you know, the, the word of God. Let's pause for a moment to ask if you are looking for a Catholic university where the greatest works of Western and Catholic tradition are the foundation for learning, all in an environment that is faithful to the magisterium. That's the University of Dallas in Irving, Texas. Recommended by the Cardinal Newman Society, the university offers an exceptional liberal arts education with undergraduate and graduate programs in arts and sciences, business, and ministry, as well as a campus in Rome, Italy, all of them preserving the wisdom of the past while preparing students for world-changing futures. Academically excellent, always faithful. Apply today at udallas.edu. Quick quick definition, how does fornication differ from adultery? Well, they're pretty closely aligned. I, I think fornication is normally used to refer to sex outside of wedlock generally voluntary, as opposed to, let's say, something like rape, whereas adultery would involve at least one of the partners being married to, to, to somebody else. Um, however, so for example, Baxter said, first of all, one of the, one of the, one of the people, things that people tend not to see about fornication, you know, the great Puritan minister, he said fornication always involves two people encouraging sin in the other, so it compounds the sin. You're not only succumbing to temptation yourselves, but you're encouraging the other person to sin. It always involves two people. And in that sense, adultery is, is very similar. Um, the other thing, however, is that in one way, they're, they're fairly closely aligned because most sex that people have outside of marriage is, so, is with someone to whom they will never be married. Hmm. They are having sex with somebody else's spouse. That person just isn't married yet. And... Um, that actually has real consequences, for example, especially multiple sex partners are associated with higher rates of marital failure. So you, you really are hurting that other person, yeah. you know, and in, so I wouldn't want to call it adultery in the formal sense of the word, but in a certain sense, they are closely aligned. You speak of the sexual liberalism, quote unquote, of, of evangelical singles. You know, do, do these people, as they sort of float from relationship to relationship, how strong at the back of their mind is, well, one of these is going to end up being my, my husband or wife. And, you know, my serial dating is really kind of just moving toward marriage. Do they, do they think that? Yes, although I think less and less. I think, I think marriage is more and more remote in terms of their horizon. Uh, it's more and more remote in, t- in terms of, you know, what's motivating them at this period of time. The idea that at the age of, let's say, I know it varies by culture, but let's say by the ages of 18 to 19, the person is essentially intentionally seeking a spouse. Uh, I've, I've been in college teaching since 1986 in evangelical circles. I've been at Grove City College since 1996. I would say that that's less true now than ever. 
Uh, and there's always been pockets of it, particularly, you know, people coming out of Christian schools, classical Christian schools, homeschooling are much more marriage minded. Mm-hmm. And they're going to tend to get married younger. And by the way, their chances of remaining married are actually very high, uh, even if they are marrying younger because because of the way they're approaching the institution yeah. and because of what they're not doing before they get married. But that's a smaller and smaller group. Yeah. And um, I'm just not, you know, I teach I teach family class, and I, I can say even since I started at Grove City College in 1996, resistance to some of the most basic common sense Christian understandings about sex and marriage is off the charts compared to what I experienced 25, 27 years ago. You, you refer to uh, outcomes, and I, you're talking about some of the social science evidence of this, what does the social science? What what is more? What is more data on the? I don't know the correlations of sex outside marriage about well, lot, lots of partners. What do we see for those people later on? Their chances of, of remaining married um, are much lower. You know, cohabitation lowers your chances of being married. Now, there's a lot of arguments about why that is and whether it's correlation or cause. And But there's no legitimate argument, which many people actually believe that cohabitation actually prepares you for marriage. There is no legitimate social science evidence for that. It definitely yeah. doesn't help. It definitely doesn't help. But clearly, serial cohabitation dramatically undermines the chances of being uh, successfully married. Serial and promiscuous sex uh, definitely lowers your chances of being successfully married. Secular liberal social scientists have verified those types of connections. And it it sets off those things both for direct uh, and indirect uh, reasons. The other thing is your objective chances of, of getting, for example, for a woman getting pregnant are really very high. Because every, every form of contraception, even used perfectly, has a failure rate. And, and the more promiscuous you are, the more you're pushing up against the limit of that failure rate. But, but it's almost impossible to, to, to use contraception perfectly. Human beings uh, in the throes of sexual desire <laughs> tend not to use contraception perfectly. It, 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 it's basically a common sense insight. And once you have that, of course, that's going to set off an additional wave of potential issues, uh, whether or not the, it culminates in an out-of-wedlock pregnancy or an abortion or a rushed marriage. None of those are really very good things to do. Yeah. But let's say, for example, you religiously use condoms and the condoms have a 2% you know, failure rate. Well, that means two out of 100. Well, as you continue, that number is going to continue to climb. Uh, and eventually, you know, but, but, of course, then that also brings in sexual diseases as well. And yeah. all of those are going to have a negative impact on future marital relationships. None of those are things, they're all forgivable, but they're not really the kind of things you want to carry with you into marriage. The, the latter part of the book lays out a, a framework for, for churches to follow on this issue. Let me ask, do, do you see any problem with a pastor citing social science data on bad outcomes right alongside biblical proscriptions? No. First of all, because the, um, the data helps to support, it, 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 it gives us a picture of 
of the validity of what the Bible is telling us in the world around us, in the same way that the book of Proverbs constantly talks about outcomes. So if, if it's wrong for the pastor to talk about outcomes, and a lot of pastors think, oh, you know, I want them refraining for pure reasons. Well, no. <laughs> you know, I had a pastor tell me once, he said, you know, it's, it's always great to do the right thing for pure reasons, but secondary reasons are pretty good too. <laughs> Especially if they, get you th if they get you through the pinch, <laughs> it, it's not a bad thing. Yeah. Um, so, so to knock, for example, chastity, because you're, you're actually practicing chastity to avoid pregnancy or sexual diseases. <laughs> yeah, I think we want people to go beyond that. But they certainly need to be aware that you can't fool around with God. That, yeah. that, he, that, that the created order reflects the moral framework that God gave us. And the rules and the boundaries that he gave us come from a wise and a loving God. Therefore, what I always say to, what I say a lot to church audiences, and I probably repeat this phrase repeatedly, for God's glory and your good, for God's glory and your good. And that's the order, but they're always both true in any, any moral commandment that God gives you for his glory and your good. You, you cite some examples, unfortunate examples, of evangelical leaders uh, slipping on all of this. How much damage has the, the lapsed behavior of evangelical figures done in the minds of evangelical young to the authority of the church to talk about these matters to them? Huge. And, and the thing is, is that once we know about and the ones we focus on are the celebrity crashes, you know, uh, and particularly where it's papered over or excused or very quickly the person is restored to the pulpit within a month and, you know, gets a rap on the wrist. I mean, that's terrible. But the fact is, is that the real destruction is occurring at the local level and, and where the um, these young people are seeing hypocrisy at the local level. So if I could tell a quick I came out of the Jesus movement, you know, the whole charismatic Jesus movement of the 70s. And um, so I was I was at the hospital getting some pain management therapy. And um, I was talking to this younger nurse and she's like, oh, you know, I said, yeah, I think my I think I threw my back out because I spent so much time working on this book. I was hunched over the computer <laughs> a lot. She said, well, oh, what book was it? So I started telling her about the book. And she said, so then it got into a discussion about my faith. And she said, my parents are just like you. They came in the Jesus movement and they raised us like that and the whole courtship dating scene. And, um, um, you know, my parents are a lot like you, but I, I'm no longer really consider myself a Christian. And as we discussed it, she said it was because of the kind of hypocrisy that you are talking about in your book. She said, I saw at the church level exactly what you're saying, that sexual infidelity was widely practiced. Hmm. Um, and um, it, it basically, it had played a major role in undermining her faith. And she said the faith of her sister. Uh, whereas her parents had stuck it out, they had developed some perspective on it um, and, and continued. And, and she, she felt her parents had been really admirable. She just saw so many people around that, that simply talked one way and acted another with regards, particularly, she said, to sex. Yeah. So I haven't had a chance to go over to the hospital yet and hand her a copy of the book. You, you must. You the, must. Yeah, yeah. She made me promise to give her a copy of the book when I got done because she said, I, I really just want to read about that. And I yeah. said, yeah, because she had lived it. Yeah. And she, she, it had alienated her from the Christian faith. And she was a typical, intelligent, educated, successful young person. Who'd, who'd watch this unfold. 
it wasn't Jimmy Swaggart or, or Jimmy yeah. Baker or the big scandals. It was the daily scandals in the local church that had basically chiseled away yeah. at her relationship with Christ. The book is, After the Revolution, Sex and the Single Evangelical. Professor Ayers, thank you for joining us. Oh, thank you very much for having me. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.